Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I have heard and read some crazy stories in my time, but this next one is really something. It doesn't even sound real, but it is. It's all about the very wild and very real world of corporate espionage. An article you must read in the latest issue of Bloomberg Business Week is all about an extraordinary case of foreign and corporate espionage that's kind of intertwined. I can't even possibly explain this whole thing to you. So I'm going to let the person who wrote the article do that for us. Drake Bennett is with us now, staff writer for Bloomberg Business Week. Good morning, Drake. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. But this article is really something. How long did it take to, for the research for this? Uh, you know, it, it sort of, it was several months from beginning to end. Um, I mean, it, it was, a, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of reporting because it's, uh, it's very much based on these court documents, uh, from the trial of the woman at the center of the case. So it's kind of getting the court documents and then reading them and then, you know, also talking to people to try to get some of the context around it. Okay, so it's about a woman, as you say, the center of this case, a woman named Shannon Yu, who was a chemist, specializes in the engineering of biochemical materials and worked at Coca-Cola from 2012 to 2017. So that's where we're starting. Tell us about what happened in this case. Well, the, the technology at the center of this is actually something that's, uh, you know, very ubiquitous, but all but visible. It's the, the polymer liners that line the inside of a Coke can or really any beverage can. They're extremely important um, because without them, the, the Coke would basically eat through the can um, and the, the drink itself, whether it's a Coke or, you know, a Topo Chico or a Monster Energy drink or whatever, would the taste would kind of get corrupted by, by the can. So um, they're, they're kind of these wonders of chemical engineering to get the sort of recipe of the lining right. And you have to design them so that you can spray them on in you know, a couple seconds as these things are whizzing through these giant can factories. Uh, so these coating companies uh, that work with Coke, companies like Axo Nobel or Sherwin-Williams that we think of as, as paint companies, coating companies spend, you know, tens of millions of dollars to, to design these sort of next generation coatings, especially because they're trying to get uh, BPA out of them, which there are a lot of health concerns around BPA. So um, Shannon Yo is at Coke in this very pivotal spot where she's deciding which of these liners Coke is going to approve for use with its beverages. So all these companies kind of need to go through her to get Coke's approval. And what she starts doing is, is asking for increasing amounts of information about these highly proprietary trade secrets. Uh, and, and reluctantly, these companies start giving it to her. Uh, and she's, it starts becoming evident that she's sort of using them for a, a different purpose. Okay. And then how did that all come to light? Well, it comes to light, uh, as, you, as you said at the top, it's, it's a bit of a tangled tale, but she gets, she gets laid off from Coke, um, and then she sort of takes, she has this hoard of these uh, trade secrets from other companies that she's, she's 
uh, acquired. So she takes it with her to a new job at a company called Eastman Chemical. It used to be part of Eastman Kodak, but now it's a big chemical company. And there, um, she really sort of uh, starts acting very strangely. uh, And uh, strangely enough that she gets fired very quickly. And as she leaves there, uh, her, her bosses there just decide to take a look at her the sort of company electronic devices she turns back in. And it turns out that she's got all these trade secrets from all these companies, including her, you know, Eastman, her employer, but all these other companies that they didn't really realize they worked with or didn't think they worked with. So eventually the FBI gets involved and it turns out that uh, Dr. Yo has been all along um, communicating with and working with and traveling to meet with folks in China uh, with whom she is planning to start her own you know, Coke can sort of like can liner coating company. Um, because as it turns out, there isn't one in China. It's a giant opportunity. And she and her partners are going to take this uh, IP from, you know, her former employers and, and use it to start a competitor to those companies. That is crazy. Is this one of the bigger cases of corporate espionage uh, that you've seen? It's big. I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, the prosecutors in the case, uh, put a figure of $120 million on kind of what it took to develop these various formulas that she took, uh, took from Coke. Uh, I mean, they weren't Cokes, but they, she got them at, in her job at, at Coke. Um, and, and part of what's interesting and part of why my colleague Jordan Robertson and I kind of latched onto this story, in, in addition to the fact that we just had all this kind of great detail about what happened is that it, it kind of lets us into this, these, these programs called talent programs, which the Chinese government um, has had in place for several years now. And what they are are these, the government sets aside all this money to try to incentivize Chinese-born uh, scientists and engineers who've gone abroad to get you know, elite educations, to get jobs at big engineering and tech firms, try to get them to come back and start Chinese companies. Uh, but part of what they end up doing, uh, the, these programs, according to their critics, is that they also incentivize people to bring back IP. And a lot of that IP has basically been stolen. A lot of that intellectual property has been taken from the places where these folks work. So this was an interesting, very uh, detailed look at how that works. Um, and one of the interesting twists that we found is that in this case, it, it's unclear whether the system kind of worked the way it was supposed to. It seems like what Dr. Yo and her colleagues or her sort of co-conspirators were doing here is, is taking this money from the Chinese government and then maybe not even planning to start the company. So it's kind of like the way people would do like PPP fraud in the United States where they, there's this pot of money and people are like, oh, I'll just take the money. I won't do the thing. Right. I won't start this big company because that's a lot of work, but I'll take this like $800,000 and that's just easy money. It's it's a crazy case, as you pointed out there. So, are companies um, are they on to this, Drake? Like, is this something that big corporations in the United States have to guard against? Yes. Uh, I mean, the answer. I guess it's sort of the answer to the second question is yes, and the answer to the first question is you know sort of. Uh, I mean, they're uh, part of what was striking about this case, as kind of you know all the evidence came out, is that. Um, Coca-Cola, where Dr. Yo worked you know, before she went to Eastman, um, kind of let her get away with what she was doing for a while, despite what should have been some real red flags. So the, the company had in place these systems, you know, these kind of IT security systems that 
in retrospect, allowed them and, and the investigators to kind of reconstruct what she had been doing. But at the time, it didn't really, you know, it, no one kind of like raised their hand and, and said something about it at the time. So um, I think there's still a lot of, um, you know, there's still, I think, maybe some reluctance to to really go after this. You know, there's a balancing act and it's shifting now in the U.S. because, you know, China and the U.S. are uh, kind of decoupling a, a bit. But for a while, there was this real calculation that companies had to make about, you know, we know this is happening to a certain extent, but w- this is also a very important market for us. It's also, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of Tech companies, mm-hmm. a lot of you know, engineering companies have you know manufacturing facilities in China, so it was it's it's kind of a, a tough calculation they had to make. Boy, it's so fascinating, Drake. Thank you for telling us about it. Thanks a lot. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead, and after you can unwind using their free high speed Wi Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Mornings with Simi. What a beautiful song, right? Of course it is. One of the great singer-songwriters there. I even think Scott Chance would agree with me. Wouldn't you agree, Scott? No question. As soon as I heard the first few notes, I was like, oh, good choice. Very Love good choice. this song. So our producer Greg here had a hot take this morning in saying that he feels that the music today is not as good as the music of yesteryear in terms of singer-songwriters. I would agree with that. Okay. Yep. Yep, I would agree with that. Singer-songwriters of yesteryear, certainly better than today. Okay, then, well, argument's over. What can I do for you today? (laughs) Well, we've been spending the week kind of getting to know each other, Simi, which has been a lot of fun. And uh, at the beginning of the week, we did this thing where you asked me a bunch of questions, and I was kind of sort of put in the hot seat. And Oh, like they were so hard. uh, Star Wars or Star Trek, Picard or Kirk. Come on. Yes, and and, and that's fun. (laughs) But I, you know, I sort of thought, like, usually when you kind of have these do these things at parties and stuff. It's kind of a two-way street, and and I wanted to do that with you. I wanted to ask you some of these oh. kind of questions uh, so that a I can get to know you. And I thought maybe there's things, some things that you know the audience will find out as well. So all right, fire okay. away. Uh, my first question for you is: What's your favorite thing about your career? Oh, that's a good question. That I'm still employed? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, my career has been varied and I've, oh, I've loved that. Like I, I've been in the industry, but I have done a lot of different... I started out as a newspaper reporter at the Surrey Leader. So I've done newspaper reporting. I worked in television, but in television, that's just saying one thing, but I was a writer for the news. I was a producer for the news. I was an anchor. I was a reporter. So I've, I've always done different things. So it's 30 years this year that I have been in the industry since graduating from journalism school, but I've never really ever done the same job for an extended period of time. Okay, cool. And congratulations on 30 years. Thank you. That's fantastic. Uh, If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? Oh, here. 
Vancouver. Yes. Of all the cities. Yes. Okay, let's take Vancouver out of the equation. You can uh, live anywhere except Vancouver. Don't do Vancouver. that. I play this game with my son all. He <laughs> asks me these kinds of... I think I'm a West Coast person. Can, okay. I, can I just say that? Sure. Because yeah. like you can say that about East Coast or whatever. I think in the end, I am just a West Coast person. Okay. I know you're a big reader. I am. Um, recommend a book to me or a book that you think people should read. Allow me to check my list because I keep track of the books that I read. Okay. So I have a list. Do you like fiction, nonfiction? I like nonfiction. You like nonfiction. Well, a book that I have on my bedside that I have not yet read, um, and perhaps you would enjoy this, I don't know. But okay, if you like nonfiction, there is a movie, a Martin Scorsese movie that is coming out later this year based on a book from a few years back by an author named David Grant, Killers of the Killers Flower of the Moon. Flower Moon. Have you the tra- read that? The trailer came out yesterday. Have you seen the book? Have you read the book though? I, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't read it. Great book. Okay. Love it. I have that one, but his new book from the same author is called The Wager. And it looks amazing. I have it. I bought it a couple weeks ago. I'm going to take it on my trip with me next week. But I perhaps you would enjoy that. Okay. I'll th- thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, okay. Favorite board game? Uh, probably Mon- Trouble or Monopoly. Okay. Monopoly is a good one. I it's love Trouble. Classic. Trouble is like, uh, we'll, like, we'll yell at each other. Family, <laughs> like, we, family game night is very contentious at my house. Well, that's essential to making family game <laughs> night fun. Okay. How about this? What was your favorite subject in school? Oh, anything relating to do with either English or social studies. Okay. Um, Funniest movie. Not favorite, but the one that makes you laugh the most. Oh, there's so many, right? Like, I love, I love Zoolander. Great choice. I love Wedding Crashers. Wedding Crashers is great. Uh, We often around here quote Step Brothers. Okay. Like I love like there's a, those are comedies where I will giggle my way through them anytime. Sure. Did 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 we just become best friends? We did. <laughs> <laughs> is this process helping us to become best friends? I I think it is. I think it is. Do we have time for one more? <laughs> yeah. Is, go okay, ahead. Let's go keep ahead. going. Um, how about this? Who would you want to play you in a movie about your life? Oh no, that's a terrible because this is an awful question because anything sounds vain that I say here, right? Well, like, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. No, it does. It like for who that is I feel like this is just riddled with a, it's a trap as Admiral Akbar would say. It's a trap. Okay. Um I can't think of anybody who you know like okay. Who would play? I don't know. Who do you think would play me? I can't genuinely, I can't think of somebody. Who do I think would play you? <sighs> you know, they used yeah. to make fun of me when I worked in TV. When I worked at a TV station, they used to make fun of me and tell me that I looked like, and I shouldn't even say this because I feel like it's going to come back and bite me now. Joan Baez. Do you remember okay. Joan Baez? Uh, I'm going to Joan Baez, I think I'm a young, have to Google. Yeah, a young Joan Baez, and they used to make fun of me and telling me that I'm like, well, Joan Baez was great. So why... Why would I object to that? I don't object to that. I can see it. Yeah? I can see it. Sure. There you go. Young Joan Baez. I feel like I've learned so much, Simi. (laughs) Thank you for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for us to have our weekly check-in with Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. All right. We got to work down this list here because I want to start this morning with this whole situation in Montana. The state of Montana is banning TikTok. How do they expect this to work? 
It's a good question because there are questions coming back to the state in how they expect this to work. But essentially uh, what the state is trying to do here is make it illegal to download TikTok, have it on your phone. And if the app is downloaded, then it would result in fines of something like $10,000 a day, which would obviously then be placed upon uh, the app stores that are uh, that are giving this. Their questions become here. Is this actually possible? What happens if you're coming from out of state and you have TikTok on your phone and you cross a state line because the United States doesn't obviously have that kind of ability to monitor people in the same way that a country like China would. Uh, and there are people who question whether this would violate the constitutional right to free speech. Ultimately, Montana says, look, this is bad for national security. They could you know, be harvesting information from the people of Montana. It's likely going to face a court challenge. Okay, but in the meantime, then, did, like, did, how does this law start right away? Should people in Montana get off TikTok? No, so there there is a time frame for it that would be uh, at least next year for this. Again, this would have to work its way through a court system. It would likely find its way up to some of the highest courts in the country to figure out whether or not a state can actually make a determination about something to do with national security. Uh, for the most part, people are simply pushing back, saying, look, my phone, my time, my app. See what happens. Yeah, exactly. I'm so curious about that one. Uh, also, so let's take a look at what's going on with these abortion rulings. I know it's been quite the headlines in, in different states. And this week, we've got another round of states who are passing abortion bans. Making it much more difficult for somebody to be able to access the procedure. And uh, what is concerning about this uh, is that South Carolina and North Carolina both were the two latest states to enact uh, more kind of restrictive access to, uh, to abortion. Uh, and what it does now is block nearly every single person in in the southern United States from accessing abortion care. There are 13 states that are south of Virginia uh, and east of Texas that have now either put a restriction uh, in place or have outright banned it, like in places uh, in Louisiana. In South Carolina, after a banner back and forth, uh, Republicans won, uh, and it has moved to a six-week ban. In North Carolina, they overrode the Democratic governor, who tried to keep it at 20 weeks, rolling it back to 12 weeks. Uh, and again, this makes it much more difficult for anybody to be able to practice or obtain this procedure. Again, locking off access to tens upon tens of millions of people now. Okay, so there's that still going on. And I think the big story out of the States too in the last week has, has we keep hearing the words debt ceiling and deal. Like, what is this all about? So look, this is a big deal uh, in the fact that the United States is actively approaching uh, what's called the X date, which is believed to be June 1st, where the government simply won't have any more money left. They will not be able to pay for obligations like Social Security or the military or any of the things that were passed uh, in the budget. And if they are not able to do that, they would ultimately default on their obligations, default on their debt, and it would throw the entire world into uh, kind of an economic um, crisis. It would impact Canada. It would impact trade. It would impact pretty much every market around the world. So there is ongoing negotiations and uh, you know conversations to try and find some kind of leeway. The president doesn't want to negotiate. He is saying, "Look, pass the bill as you had written it, uh, and we will do with this appropriately." Republicans are saying, "Look, no, no, no. We want concessions. We want you to start cutting things out of the budget, uh, even though we passed this budget in the first place, in order to ensure that we don't default." Neither side wants this to happen. The conversations are ongoing, but ultimately, somebody is going to have to give. Otherwise, the United States is going to collapse in on it. 
itself. And there's room, the, the wiggle room here is on both sides, right? Because it's so evenly divided in, in the House of Representatives. Yeah, I mean, look, re- Republicans are going to have a difficult time here. Number one, uh, they have the majority, but the party isn't unanimous on bringing a bill forward. And if Republicans try to bring a budget bill forward, it's not going to pass because they don't have the votes for it within their own party. So it would fail, meaning Democrats could bring a budget bill forward and try to find five maybe moderate-leaning members of the Republican Party to come on side, and that bill would pass. Ultimately here, they need to do something because the clock is ticking, and if you know June 1st comes and goes and there is no deal in place, the United States risks throwing itself into a recession, losing millions upon millions of jobs, and immediately having an impact on people extending way beyond the borders of the U.S. Oh boy, okay, that is a big one. And then on the backdrop of all this, you've got this presidential election campaign, which is already going on, and I thought, you know, he might as well just say it, that he's running, because it's seems like he has been running for a long time, but Ron DeSantis is finally going to make it official? Yeah, he's planning a soft launch on uh, on uh, on the 25th of this month, a potential launch sometime, maybe on the 1st, although he's known to not kind of stick to a schedule. He likes to throw a bit of a cannon into the mix, so it could be before that. Uh, his polling numbers are not good. He has an incredibly large war chest, I believe the second uh, amongst all Republicans that are in the race, uh, but he is facing criticism because he has been waffling on some of his uh, conversations when it has to do with Ukraine. He has put incredibly restrictive policies in place in Florida, which may benefit him at the state level, but may kind of fall out of line with where the broad majority of Republicans are in the country. But notably, he hasn't really taken any big swipes at Donald Trump, and in doing that, has allowed Donald Trump to control the narrative. So he's getting in at a time where he will likely be the number two in the race, but is it a little too little too late? That's what we'll have to watch for. Okay, so fascinating. And uh, I'm going to ask you about this feel like I'm obligated to, but what was this whole Meghan and Harry situation in New York? Like, were they chased by paparazzi or were they not chased by paparazzi? Well, I think from what we're hearing from police and some people on the street is that the paparazzi were going after them, but potentially not driving over people and running into fire hydrants and, you know, getting into collisions. The, 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 the Duke and Duchess, you know, the conversation was around some catastrophic car chase. We heard their own taxi driver say, well, it was a little chaotic because we were driving and they had to go to a police station to get another car. Uh, there are detractors who say, look, this was simply, you know, a couple who is, you know, seeking publicity, uh, you know, following behavior that you know we've seen from them before trying to just keep themselves in the spotlight ultimately they weren't hurt nobody in the car was hurt and the story kind of came and went it grabbed headlines American networks were talking about it far more than British networks were. Oh, I totally noticed that. Did you notice that? (laughs) Some British tabloids were going to pretend that it wasn't even happening. Yeah, I mean, I immediately flicked on BBC and Sky News and they were talking about it and then immediately went to something else, whereas, you know, the US covered this for for hours and hours on end. And ultimately, by the end of the day, no one was talking about it again. Oh, boy, that's the way it goes. Uh, Reggie, thank you for that. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, too. That is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Long list of stories, as always, to catch up on from the U.S. Uh, but yeah, it is really funny when you find see who covered that Meghan and Harry story and who did not cover that story. This is Mornings with Simi. While a lot of us will be on the road this long weekend, this is also typically one of the most dangerous, too, in the terms of accidents and the call-outs. So let's talk about how busy it actually gets for the first responders out there and what they see. So joining us now is longtime ambulance paramedic Brian Twaits. He's been doing this job for more than 35 years, so he would definitely know. Brian, thanks for joining us. 
Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me today. So tell me about this long weekend. What does it mean for first responders? How much busier does your job get? Well, you know, the long weekend predominantly is the time when everybody wants to get out on the road, get out to the cabins, uh, get out onto the lakes. So our call volume does generally go up on long weekends. And, uh, you know, an example that's kind of hard to hear is motor vehicle incidents are, you know, roughly about 60 calls per day for motor vehicle incidents over the long weekend. So the the call volume for those definitely spikes. And do you... Do, do ambulance paramedics, do you sense that? Like, do you know right away, okay, this is going to be a very busy weekend? Well, as a paramedic, you, you take that into consideration for sure. You know the long weekend's coming. You know there's going to be more people out enjoying things, uh, water sports, out on the road. So we, we do sort of have a mental preparedness of, yeah, it's going to be a little bit busier this weekend for sure. All right, so what... What can we do to help that, though, Brian? Like, what do you, what do you, the mistakes that you see out there that we make? Well, I think the biggest uh, problem is the distracted driving, obviously, and people not planning ahead. I think the big thing is is planning ahead, knowing that you're going to be going somewhere, and giving yourself enough time to get there, so you're not at a rush once you're behind the wheel. Distracted driving, things like your cell phone. Make sure you put it, for example, in the glove box so it doesn't distract you. And believe it or not, we've even seen things like people doing personal grooming. No. People are shaving while they're driving. Uh, you know, there's a time where I actually was behind a vehicle and someone was actually curling their hair while driving. So, you know, put the stuff away, concentrate on the road, and be safe. And be, be prepared for your trip as well, especially we've got the heat. Make sure you pack some water some non-perishable energy foods in case, you know, you get stuck somewhere or, or come across an accident. So you're prepared. Okay, so is this what you see as first responders, that people, when they are in an accident or something happens, that they, they're really not prepared for the conditions? Well, that, that can be part of it. I mean, we have to think about that during the winter, and we also have to think about it during the summer. If your car breaks down in the middle of the Coquihalla Highway and you don't have you know, water and food, you could be there for quite a while. And another thing we always like to bring up as well is if you're traveling up one of the big highways, especially, well, any time of year, but on the long weekend, and traffic comes to a standstill because there's an accident or some form of an incident on the road, we ask that everybody when you're on a divided highway is to pull your cars over to either side of the road because that gives a clear pathway for emergency vehicles to get through to whoever may need our help. Right. How important is patience? Patience? Yes. Is extremely important. And that's why we like to say leave a little bit early. That gives you the time to just not get stressed about, oh, I've got to be there on a certain time. Put that time aside. Know that you need it to make your trip safely. And so you talked about the etiquette about people, people pulling over. Now, I see this every day, Brian, but you as a paramedic, like, are people good about obeying the rules? If they see you coming in an ambulance, do people pull over? You know, the majority of time, I, I like to say yes, but you've said it. You've seen where people don't pull over. and I like to attribute that to, you think about how many times in your lifetime where you actually have an emergency vehicle come up behind you suddenly with its lights and sirens on. It probably doesn't happen that often to most people. So I can see why they'd be startled 
about, oh, oh my gosh, there they are, what do I do? But again, it, it becomes to being non-distracted. While you're driving, check your mirrors. Have your window open a little bit so you can hear sirens. If you're continuously checking your mirrors, you know you'll see the vehicle coming up behind you. So one tip that I like to advise people, if, if you have an emergency vehicle approaching you, so turn on your turn indicator to let the driver of the emergency vehicle know that you actually have you know seen them, you know they're coming, oh. and that you're indicating that you're going to pull over to the side of the road to the right side to get out of the way. So that way the driver of, you know, for myself, if I'm driving the ambulance, I know that you know I'm coming and that you have a plan to move out of my way. It just makes our life a lot easier. Oh, such a simple thing, right? But then I, I don't usually see a lot of people doing that. Well, you know, it's, uh, like I say, I think a lot of the time people get startled, but that's just a simple tip that if people can keep in mind, checking their mirrors, always listening, and if you, even if you don't see us coming, we could be coming towards you or from another street, make the effort to pull over to the side of the road because it is the law as well. That is so true. Okay, and so once again, advice for this weekend, especially if people are heading out on the roads, what would ambulance paramedics like people to do? We want you to be safe. We want you to take your time. Make sure you've packed stuff like water, a first aid kit if you need it. But really, be safe. Take your time. Enjoy the long weekend. Good advice. Thanks, Brian. Okay, thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, good news for a lot of travelers out there is that WestJet and its airline pilots reached a last-minute deal after a lot of negotiation, meaning there is no strike today, which is great. Bad news on that is things are not fully back to normal when it comes to their schedule because they had been preparing for the strike. So there are still flight cancellations and delays. So check with WestJet if you have a flight with them before you head out to the airport. Now, we know that the contract negotiations were kind of stuck on a couple of big issues, right? It was definitely salary. It was work condition. It was job protections. This idea of even like just keeping labor, whether it's pilots, flight attendants, you name it, this has been a huge one for the airline industry, especially during the pandemic and since the pandemic has been over and people have renewed flying really with a vengeance. A lot of people who want to keep up that, you know, that habit of flying to and from and they're just, it's expensive and there's been staffing shortages and it's been nothing but it feels like problems. So let's talk about where the industry is at right now. And is this something that we can expect more of, that kind of disruption in the airline industry moving forward? Great Harvey is with us now, Professor and Dan Cap, Private Equity Chair of Human Organization at Western University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Is this a sign of things to come in the airline industry? I mean, this is one labor dispute, but are there more on the horizon? Sadly, I suspect this will be. I, I think this is this is something that we, we are going to see more of. Um, and this is, you know, has been driven by the pandemic. But the pandemic has exacerbated problems that existed long before we had the closures of commercial airspace. Okay. And so is this, what has happened here? Like, is there things that the airline industry or the airlines themselves have done to put them in this position? Well, I think what this goes back to is deregulation uh, back in the, the sort of 80s and 90s. What we see is that the the old system of arranging flights where uh, the tariff, the cost of the passenger was determined by national government. 
Uh, we saw the end of that, which introduced an era of competition on cost. And so airlines began to focus on things like tariff and focus on the, the cost base that they had. And because of cost, cost competition, airlines were reducing costs. Lots of costs with the airlines can't be reduced. One thing you can reduce is labour costs. So over that, that period, certainly the last 30 years in Canada, what we've seen is an erosion of terms and conditions of employment. Now, the, the industry is, is susceptible to economic change. It's, it's particularly susceptible to crises, and we've had plenty of those in the industry in the last 25 years. And with these fluctuations, we've had you know, additional pressures put on staff. And even prior to the pandemic, there were, there were lots of unrest among various groups within the airlines because employees had had enough and they, they wanted to take their share in, in airline profitability. Right. But the demand is certainly there, isn't it, Grant? Like, it, it, there are still lots of people who want to fly, but it does feel like the airlines just can't keep up. There's certainly, it, it's certainly a resilient industry. And, and what has been uh, fascinating is, you know, as we came out of the pandemic and the closure of airspace, there were the questions over whether we'd ever return to the same levels of demand. You know, it, there were sort of environmental considerations. Had people learned to, to um to live without traveling. And no, what we've seen is as soon as that airspace opened up, the flights filled up again. Um, so it's an incredibly resilient industry. But one thing I will say um, is that airlines will have suffered severely as a consequence of the pandemic because the one thing with airlines, if they're not flying, not only are they not making money, they're actually losing money. So when the aircraft are on the ground, those airlines are actually losing money. So these airlines had a really tough time through the pandemic, with the closure of commercial airspace. Do airlines take the demand for granted, do you think? Because like, clearly they have been you know, thinking that, well, this the good times in terms of having a labor pool and having customers was just going to keep going. Well, I guess it's, I, I don't know whether there's any, I, I don't think we, we can sort of blame airline management for this. I think there have, there's been structural um, pressures on airlines to, as I say, compete on costs. Um, and in order to get those large numbers in onto the aircraft, obviously cost becomes a, a real factor. Um, I think that, that at this point there, there needs to be some reconsideration about how airlines operate, and certainly in relation to labour. Because remember, this is a service industry, and this is reliant on the efforts of staff and the, the performance, in this case, airline pilots. But going forward, we may be seeing disputes with with cabin crew and other um, other employee groups within the airline industry. These are the people who represent the airline. They're the people who deal with, and we've seen lots of this recently, the problems on the flights. And so these employees are rightly looking to the airlines to um, for better terms and conditions. Is this a Canadian situation, Garrett, or is this also happening in the United States? I think the, the issue with the pilots uh, is it, there's something distinctive about um, civil aviation in Canada. The airline pilots, given what they have to go through, given the nature of the job, they aren't paid especially well. Um, so I think that is distinctive. Uh, you know, the Canadian context is distinctive there, but I think this is a global issue, and we are likely to see this across the board. Um, I, I came to this wonderful country from the UK in in 2021, in 2020. Um, well, sorry, prior to the pandemic, we saw labour disputes. It wasn't just the pandemic. What the, 
the pandemic done is um, has done sorry is exacerbated matters. So this isn't just a Canadian thing. This is a global civil aviation problem. Right. So how can customers? How can we brace ourselves for this? <laughs> That's a very good question. I, I think that. Obviously, airlines will be doing everything they can to keep um, aircraft in the air. No employee groups wants to go on strike either. I mean, the, the fact that this came as far as it did is because the pilots felt very strongly about their terms and conditions. So nobody, no parties, and, and customers included, but no parties in the airline industry want strike action because it's, it's a problem for everyone involved. So are we likely to see huge disruption? I don't know. I understand for customers who've booked on the flight, there has been this uncertainty over the last few days, and we're likely to see similar levels of uncertainty. But of course, this is a major issue. To get as far as this, 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 is, this is not going to happen you know, every other day. We're likely to see you know, more um, requests and more demands for um, terms and conditions. But it has to get, it has to be felt very strongly and it has to get, you know, fairly severe for us to get to this stage. It does. All right. Thank you so much for your time on that. Thanks so much for the invite. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in on our Vancouver Whitecaps. They're going to bounce back. They're going to bounce back in a big way. Let's check in with Vanny Sartini, coach of the team. Am I right, coach, or what? Yes, you. By the way, you're always right. Thank but, you. Uh, uh, yes, this time particularly. So yeah, we need to we need to do a great performance tomorrow. We we come from a week with uh, with a loss uh, in Portland and in Dallas. So we need to bounce back tomorrow in a big game against Seattle. Yeah, and this is Seattle too. Another one of our Pacific Northwest rivals here. I feel like those teams, those games are also like more intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those games are are, are more intense for a, a lot of reason. When uh, uh, when we play there, the atmosphere is more electric. The stadium normally plays a, a very big role with all the fans. There's fan also from the uh, opposition team because it's one of the few games where they can easily travel and come here to BC Place. So um, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a really, really, really intense night and uh, uh, we need to do a good game because Seattle is uh, uh, on top of uh, of the Western Conference at the moment but uh, we can beat we, we can beat them and beating them would be getting back in a really good playoff position for us so yeah it's a, okay. it's a very important game so it's a very important game as you say that oh, so what does the team need to work on like when you see what went wrong in the last game then and you think okay we obviously did this and this and we need to fix that what is it um, you know, that's for me. Last game was mainly uh, kind of a, a tale of a, a two halves. We didn't start very well, and we uh, actually played very well in the second half. And we, to be honest, we didn't deserve to lose. And we 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 played very well. We had all the chances we could have scored. I think the most important thing is to uh, um, keep the intensity and go for it from from minute one without. Uh, um, I would say waiting for the other team to slap us in order to be, I would say, <laughs> on the on the front foot and uh, and and try to score. So I think it was more a mental thing than than, than other. Uh, probably the fact that we traveled a lot. We had three games in a row away uh, in Toronto, in Portland, and in Dallas. Uh, he, the the tiredness maybe accumulated at the end, and uh, so it's it's going to be a play. It's going gonna, gonna to play a, a very 
important factor that we are home and we can uh, immediately be on the front foot on the on the on the front foot on the on the game um, in the game tomorrow. All right. Well, listen. Good luck. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you, Sue. That is Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Big game against Seattle tomorrow. And remember, you can catch all Vancouver Whitecaps games home and away on our sister station, AM 730, pregame, postgame, you name it. They've got it all going on there. Seattle lost the last game. They are looking to bounce back in a big way on this next one. Okay, so check it out. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we have been introducing you to some extraordinary British Columbians, right? For our last segment today, we want to introduce you to someone who is woven into the fabric of BC history. I mean, her family history is embedded in the history of our province. Shirley Chan's great-grandfather came to Canada for the gold rush and did everything from working on our railways to running a business in Vancouver's Chinatown. Her parents helped create the Strathcona Property Owners and Tenants Association, helped with that so important fight to stop a freeway from running right through our city. Shirley's been a CEO, a volunteer. She's worked everywhere in the community, which is her passion. So let's say good morning to Shirley Chan, the CEO of Building Opportunities with Business Intercity city society Shirley thank you for being here well good morning to me thank you so much for inviting me you do so much work in the community Shirley what keeps you going what keeps you passionate about that it's the importance of giving back the importance of knowing you belong because uh, as immigrants to Canada my family many generations ago now I really believe that this was going to be their home and this was the place that would matter. And so I think that that was instilled in me. It really was. Like, did you learn lessons from your grandparents? Did they talk about what it was like? Did your parents talk about what it was like being here back then? Um, More stories came from my mother than from my grandmother, who tended to be quiet. And my father, of course, died early, so uh, we didn't get as many stories from him. But Mother was a natural-born storyteller anyway, and so she would talk about what it was like to teach Chinese or take the bus out to what, New Westminster or working um, in a fish cannery and, uh, um, you know, how my grandfather, her dad, um, had a farm and sold vegetables door-to-door. Um, and my great-grandfather's stories of, about being expropriated for um, Port of Vancouver Harbor Development. And with the $500 he got, he was able to bring his son to Canada because there was, of course, the Chinese Exclusion Act and then the Chinese, I mean, that was later, but we, we had the head tax at that point. So. Right. And that's, those are all parts of our history that we know. So when it was time for you to kind of start getting involved and, and getting to work, what was important to you? How did you look for ways to make a difference? Well, I thought at one point that I wanted to be a teacher, but then life took its own course, and I had the opportunity to work with um, the province newspaper, and then I was given an opportunity to work on a national task force on public participation. So I, I found that my career um, moved into the federal system, uh, but also, more importantly, I did most of my most meaningful work locally, uh, working for the community, working on behalf of the Strathcona Property Owners and Tenants Association, and then uh, working for the city of Vancouver uh, when when our legal advisor, Mike Harcourt, uh, became mayor. Does the work ever end, Shirley? Because like, I look at the things that you're still doing and it doesn't seem like the work ever ends. 
Well, there were, there's always more to be done and, you know, things come back at us. I mean, the fight, uh, for the fight against the freeway in the 60s um, and trying to save Chinatown then uh, has become a new fight to try and save Chinatown as, as we see Chinatowns across North America declining and uh, the need to bring them back in a way that will preserve our history and preserve what's important uh, culturally to not just the people of Chinese ancestry, but to the whole city, because Chinatown is very much part of Vancouver. And then, of course, you know, with my daughter's illness, um, I became involved in a whole new kind of fight, right? So the fighting for uh, destigmatization of persons with serious mental illness, trying to clean up the asylum that are, is currently on our streets because of shutting down of, of institutions that used to serve and protect them too as, uh, because it, they came under fire. And so we let people out onto the streets without adequate support. And we don't treat people with a brain disorder called mental illness the same way we would treat someone with Alzheimer's. And so, yeah, the fight goes on for you. You talked about originally with the Strathcona, you know, Property Owners Association back then and Chinatown, the fight to save Chinatown in 1968. There was a real realization, I think, of how important Chinatown was. But do we forget, do you think, surely as time goes on, we, we kind of take some neighborhoods for granted? Um, I think you're quite right there. We do take neighborhoods for granted and we assume they'll always be there for us. And yet, you know, when you go down to different neighborhoods in our city, we see that they are evolving and some of them are in decline. And so if we uh, look at Chinatown, there is a historic part of Chinatown. We have many Chinatowns. That's one of the problems with the historic Chinatown is that you don't have to go there to eat. You don't have to go there to shop. You can go to Richmond or Maple Ridge or, you know, South uh, Victoria and uh, enjoy many of the similar um, shopping and eating experiences, but what you don't have is the history and the connection and the roots that Vancouver's downtown Chinatown has. And so what do you think of the fight right now to kind of revitalize Chinatown? Oh, I have to credit the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation and the leadership of Carol Lee uh, for what's um, evolving there, trying to serve the people of the neighborhood that the Chinese seniors, but also those who are living on the streets to build a health clinic, to, to build rental housing, to build uh, social housing uh, with uh, government in order to make sure that people are housed. Because, you know, homelessness is really bad for business. And what we need to do is take care of our people. And it's cheaper to take care of our people than to leave them out there on the streets and needing emergency services all the time. Uh, so I think that People like Carol Lee are to be commended and to be cheered. And thank, thankfully, our, some of our governments are beginning to recognize it. You made an interesting point there. There, You said it is cheaper in the long run to take care of people than it is to leave them out on the street, though. Have we reached that point where we realize that yet? Well, the statistics and the numbers and the evidence shows it, but we don't seem to act on it. And uh, we know there's a big bill involved, but then um, we... It, you know, for every dollar spent, I think we can save at least uh, $5. Um, certainly that is true of prevention of violent crime. You spend a dollar in prevention and you save at least 7 And evidence shows also that in some communities it's $35. What do you still want to work on, Shirley, when you look at time and you think, okay, this is these are my projects for the years ahead, what's high on your priority list? 
I think that it's really important to try and get the most vulnerable in our communities looked after and taken care of and supported and providing them with the different options that they might need to succeed in life so that we don't waste their lives, um, which is one of the things that's happening. And um, the other thing that I really want to do is probably find a little quiet time to write a few memoirs. Really? Okay, so you, you have a long list of things that you've still got going on here. Oh, yeah. There's, it doesn't end. It's a, there's a never-ending list. It certainly seems that way. Shirley, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate that. Thank you. Take care. I really appreciate your time, Simi. And um, yeah, delightful to talk to you. Well, we appreciate your time and all the work that you have done. That is Shirley Chan. Shirley is the CEO of Building Opportunities with the Business Inner City Society. But you want to know what a lifetime of history and community passion looks like? It is Shirley Chan, and she is one of our extraordinary British Columbians.